It's the worst nightmare for anyone who's ever stepped on a plane. Yesterday, Malaysian Airlines flight MH17 took off from Amsterdam and was shot down over Ukraine near the Russian border. A passenger jet on a routine flight from Amsterdam's Schiphol Airport to Malaysia is shot down over Ukraine. The conflict between Russia and Ukraine may have claimed the lives of more than 300 innocent air travelers. A Malaysian Airlines jet flying from Amsterdam to Kuala Lumpur appears to have been shot down over eastern Ukraine, coming down near the village of Grabovo, near Donetsk. Shot down by a ground-to-air missile in Europe in the 21st century. How could that happen? By whom and why? And then, amidst a fog of lies and contradictory misstatements from the Kremlin, the facts became clear. Malaysian Airlines flight MH17 was hit by a missile fired by the Russian military, killing all on board. In this edition of The Big Steel, how should the West respond to Russia's lies and its new war to subvert democracy? After the Skripal attempted poisoning, I think the Russian ambassador came up with at least 35 different versions of events, all of which were self-contradictory. So by his own definition, he must have been lying. We began with the story of the biggest theft in history, the big steal of the resources of the biggest country in the world, Russia, by its own government. Mikhail Kordakovsky was sentenced to nine years in prison for fraud and tax evasion. It's a conviction that raised eyebrows throughout much of the West because Kordakovsky had been a longtime political rival of President Putin. A government that runs the country for its own personal gain, acting more like a clique of bandits. Putin and his four closest friends have taken $20 billion a year out of Russian economy. But the result has been a 21st century Russian state using every part of its machinery, technology and power in a war many of us don't even realise is taking place to erode liberal democracy worldwide. There is cyber, there is strategic communications, there is influence with the capital I, there's psychological operations, sowing the information environment with so many different explanations for any given thing that might be going on that people believe nothing. I'm Gavin Esler, and in The Big Steel, we're telling the extraordinary story of how in one generation Russia went from communism to kleptocracy. Today's episode can be summed up in one phrase, the war on truth. We live in an Orwellian world of misinformation, disinformation, falsehoods, propaganda, the normalization of lies. It's something voters in Britain and America in particular have come to notice and worry about. We'll examine some of the most outrageous Kremlin lies, including the blizzard of falsehood concerning the shooting down of Malaysian airliner flight MH17. And we'll be trying to figure out what we can do about it. Throughout this series, we've documented the illegal way in which key figures in Russia's powerful political and business elite, from Vladimir Putin down, have stolen businesses from their owners, bent the law, acted with impunity, and thrown innocent people in jail. That's corruption at home in Russia. But the corruption of truth worldwide affects us all. It's a long and detailed charge sheet. Charge 1. Russia meddles in democratic elections, including the 2016 US presidential election and the British Brexit referendum. 
The Russian interference in the American election was well-planned. It was carried out by several different parts of the Russian government. Other actors were involved as well. It was a whole government approach. It involved multiple parts of the system. It was intentional, and I do believe it had a strong impact on the result. Charge two, Russia orchestrates a blizzard of fake news and disinformation to keep us all confused about what's true and what's false. The moment when a tape was released which revealed that Mr. Trump believed that it was acceptable to sexually assault women. At that moment, pretty much everyone thought that he was done. Everyone thought this was, this was a showstopper, that no one who had said these things and recorded being, having said these things could be President of the United States. But then I realized there were other people out there who, at strangely, at exactly the same time this story broke, started talking about how Hillary Clinton was selling sex with small children from the basement of a pizza restaurant. And at first glance, like, these seemed like completely unrelated events. Until you realized what happened was, 30 minutes after the story about Mr. Trump and his actual true advocacy of sexual assault broke, 30 minutes after that, the Russians via intermediaries dropped a bunch of emails from John Podesta, a major democratic figure, which they had spun into a, a couple of stories, one of which was that Hillary Clinton was uh, selling sex with children from the basement of a DC pizzeria. So those two things canceled each other out, basically. What should have brought an end to Mr. Trump's candidacy was nullified. And that was Russia's work, right? So without Russia having stolen the emails, and also it was probably them who came up with a spin, but regardless of that, if they hadn't stolen the emails, his campaign probably ends right there. Charge three, cyber warfare. And what is that anyway? There is strategic communications. There is influence with a capital I. There's psychological operations. And so when we try to divide, for example, influence from cyber, if we think it's only a technical challenge or it's only a fake news challenge, we're missing the point that actually this is an integrated campaign against us. Charge four, Russian international aggression and military adventures, annexing Crimea, invading Ukraine, blowing planes out of the sky, and then lying about it. The next day, a massive amount of Twitter information started blaming Ukraine for the shutdown, and it continues till today. Russia's illegal annexation of Crimea was the first time since the Second World War that one sovereign nation has forcibly taken territory from another in Europe. Charge five, murder and attempted murder, both in Russia and abroad, and lying about that as well. Those who planned Litvinenko's murder did not want the cause of his death to be discovered. The evidence suggests that the only credible explanation is that in one form or another, the Russian state was involved in Litvinenko's murder. The Russian word is desinformatsia, and it has a long history going back to the Soviet-era KGB. It means sowing doubt and creating confusion in the minds of the enemy. Vladimir Putin was once a KGB colonel, and for decades a key part of KGB doctrine was that disinformation is a useful weapon, particularly powerful in democracies which celebrate their free press. The strategy is to use lies and forgeries to turn targets into what were known as useful idiots. And by idiots, they mean you and me. 
If you want to know how it works, have a listen to a 35-year-old clip of a KGB operative called Yuri Bezmenov, also known as Thomas David Schumann. Yuri, or David, you see how disinformation and confusion works, explains how the game is played. And so are we. The main emphasis of the KGB is not in the area of intelligence at all. Only about 15% of time, money and manpower is spent on espionage as such. The other 85% is a slow process which we call either ideological subversion or active measures, активные мероприятия in the language of the KGB, or psychological warfare. What it basically means is to change the perception of reality of every American to such an extent that despite of the abundance of information, no one is able to come to sensible conclusions in the interests of defending themselves, their families, their community, and their country. It's a great brainwashing process which goes very slow. You cannot change their mind, even if you, if you expose them to authentic information, even if you prove that white is white and black is, uh, is black, you still cannot change the basic perception and the logic of behavior. Ideological subversion is, is the process which is legitimate, overt, and open. You, you can see it with your own eyes. All you have to do, all American mass media has to do is to unplug their bananas from their ears, open up their eyes, and they can see it. There is no mystery. There is nothing to do with espionage. One technique, therefore, is to keep changing the lies every time a falsehood is exposed. The more lies, the more confusion. And confusion is the whole point of disinformation. The Labour MP Chris Bryant was chair of the all-party parliamentary group on Russia. After the Skripal attempted poisoning, I think the Russian ambassador came up with at least 35 different versions of events, all of which were self-contradictory. So by his own definition, he must have been lying. Um, but he doesn't care because if you just keep on lying and lying and lying and lying and it all is inconsistent, then enough people in the country will go, well, maybe the British government's lying as well. Putin's definitely winning. The Soviet Union is long gone, the KGB has a new name, but the practices of disinformation in Russia and by Russia are eternal. Some examples are notorious and blatant. The Soviets lied and covered up the 1986 nuclear disaster at Chernobyl. In 2000, Vladimir Putin went silent following the disastrous accident which killed 118 sailors on board the submarine Kursk. He adopted the same technique over domestic Russian terrorist attacks. When it came to polonium poisoning of Putin critics like Alexander Litvinenko in London in 2006, or the nerve gas attack on the Skripals in Salisbury in 2018, despite clear and compelling evidence of official Kremlin involvement, public denial followed denial. In Berlin in 2019, a former Chechen rebel commander was assassinated and two Russian diplomats expelled from Germany. Officially, Russia had nothing to do with the murder. And on the 17th of July 2014, the Malaysian airliner MH17, with almost 300 passengers and crew on board, was blown out of the sky and a blizzard of lies began. Part of the Russian technique is to pretend nothing can be really true if you don't admit it. Torture, disappearances, murders simply never happened. 
Dennis Krivoshev is Deputy Director for Research in the Eastern Europe and Central Asia Regional Office at Amnesty International. There isn't a simple solution. The Russian authorities are increasingly unresponsive to international criticism, to international pressure, uh, and there's only so much. In fact, there's very little that works directly. So I think instruments such as European Court of Human Rights are important. But then, of course, because they matter and because they deliver decisions that the system loathes, uh, the, Russian, the Russian authorities pass a law which, by which they give themselves the right to not implement those. Uh, there's international publicity. They clearly don't like being in the spotlight, in a negative spotlight. The Russian authorities try to pretend that international criticism and international opinion doesn't matter. We know it to be wrong. We, we've seen instances where international opinion change things. With regards to specific bodies, they're all different stories. ICC, the International Criminal Court, well, currently it's unimaginable that a member of the UN, permanent member of the UN Security Council, that any official from the country will ever stand trial in that body. So, does Putin care about it? No. European Court of Human Rights, on the other hand, does hear thousands of Russian cases or receives thousands of applications, hears hundreds of cases each year, passes decisions that are very important, but it's only affecting a small number of people whose rights were wronged. And its decisions are only at best partially implemented. And those cases where we see some justice, there's so few and it's usually the outcome of intense work by Russian human rights defenders, not the outcomes of in fact, now outcomes of European court decisions as such. And yet, it, it is an important body. There's a range of others. They matter to a greater or lesser extent. But again, what really matters is public opinion at home. The authorities try to keep it under control. When they lose that control, we'll see a different country. And for that, the right to freedom of expression is absolutely key. So, who can hold the Putin regime to account? Anyone? Well, in the most appalling cases, as with the murders of those on the MH17 airliner, it can end up in foreign courts. Western intelligence agencies and relatives of the victims are convinced MH17 was shot down by a Russian-operated book surface-to-air missile fired from within the Ukraine. A case brought against Russia over MH17 is underway. But beyond a public airing of grief and anger... Does holding Putin's Russia to account in a Western court make any real difference? Aaron Jan Birkestein is a broadcaster and former MP in the Netherlands. The people who lost uh, sons and daughters and fathers and mothers, they were very angry. The sad story is Russia will never send its witnesses. They will not do it. So our government has a huge problem. We have to explain to the population, listen, we have this court case, but Russia doesn't send their uh, people we want to sentence. So that there, will, there will be absentee sentences, which is very weak. Russia's credibility problem is profound, except perhaps for a few in the West who Russian intelligence considers, in their phrase, useful idiots. 
To admit the truth about MH17 would mean the Kremlin admitting that their forces and surrogates are actively engaged in war in Ukraine, a war in Europe. So they cannot admit what almost every Western intelligence agency knows for certain. The callous brutality of shooting down MH17 is, as we mentioned, just part of a wider picture of disinformation, desinformatia. In Britain, the highest profile case was the radioactive poisoning of Alexander Sasha Litvinenko. At the night of 1st of November, Sasha suddenly became sick. He mentioned something was wrong during his meetings during the day. He was a former Russian intelligence FSB officer who, along with other colleagues in Moscow, accused the Putin regime of ordering the assassination of the London-based Russian media tycoon Boris Berezovsky. Sensing further trouble, he fled Russia and was granted asylum in the United Kingdom. In London, he worked as a writer and as a consultant for British intelligence. He openly accused Russian intelligence agents of orchestrating domestic terrorism in Russia itself. He said they were behind the 1999 Moscow apartment bombings, in which some 300 people were killed and 1,000 injured. Litvinenko believed the wave of fear which spread across Russia after those bombings helped Vladimir Putin secure the Russian presidency, claiming to be the strongman leader the country needed. The result was a reckless revenge attack from former colleagues who saw him as a traitor. On the 1st of November 2006, Sasha Litvinenko met two former FSB agents, Dmitry Kovtun and Andrei Lugovoy in London. Shortly afterwards, he fell ill. Marina, Sasha Litvinenko's widow, described to me the horrific events which led to his death. First ambulance came to our house on the second night after Sasha became ill. They didn't take him to hospital because they said it looks like a season flu. Only his temperature was very low, almost like 35. And he uh, has a problem to breathe. When in 24 hours he became even worse, and I invited a private GP doctor. And when he checked him, he said, no, he's not suitable to be at home. You better to call ambulance. After a few hours of waiting in emergency unit, they said, we really don't know what happened to him. We better to keep him in hospital. But it doesn't mean we received any news of what happened to him. And I would like to say it was almost more than 10 days when we received first time news it was radioactive poisoning. He changed so much and I started to see his uh, hair started to fail. And when I asked other doctors to explain what happened to him, one doctor from a cancer unit said he looks exactly how my patient after chemotherapy, after treatment like this. I say, okay, if it's some kind of um, radiation maybe, could you check him? And uh, after this, he was sent to um, University College Hospital. Until Sasha died, nobody knew it was alpha radiation and particularly polonium-210. Only after his death, I received this news from police of Scotland Yard. 
Sasha Litvinenko was the first known victim on UK soil of polonium-210 induced acute radiation syndrome. The British government investigated, charges were brought. Lugovoy's extradition was requested and prosecutors believed there was compelling evidence of guilt. But instead of handing him over to face British justice, Vladimir Putin awarded Lugovoy a medal for unspecified services to the motherland. President Putin was sticking up two fingers to British justice. Ben Emerson is a human rights lawyer. He represents Marina Litvinenko. He remains extremely critical of the British government's reaction to what was the murder of a Russian defector in central London using deadly radioactive material, which could have killed many others. Sasha Litvinenko's case and Mrs Litvinenko's quest for justice, when she began, uh, her struggle to get a public inquiry w- looked almost impossible. Uh, 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 Theresa May, then Home Secretary, flatly refused to order a public inquiry on the basis that the outcome might disturb the, the, the equanimity of relations between the UK and Russia. She had to be taken to the High Court on a judicial review application to overturn her decision and then took months to reach the in my view, inevitable conclusion that that was the only way forward. So it would be wrong to suggest that the British government, the Conservative Party or Theresa May was in any sense leading a charge for accountability. But uh, after the inquiry report was published, uh, when Mrs. Letnyenko and I went to see Theresa May, we were promised that even if the action that was going to be taken as a result would not all be visible to the public or even to us, action would be being taken behind the scenes to ensure that nothing of this kind would ever be allowed to happen again. Ben Emerson is not just Marina Litvinenko's lawyer. From 2011 to 2017, he was the UN Special Rapporteur on Human Rights and Counterterrorism. We've decided to allow this section of his interview with me to run at length because with his expertise, Ben is able to consider the wider issues of tackling the Kremlin regime. This is important because Sasha Litvinenko was just one target for assassination on British soil. Sergei Skripal was another former Russian intelligence officer who had, like Litvinenko, defected to the West. His daughter Yulia was visiting him at his home in Salisbury. This time, the assassin's weapon wasn't a radioactive isotope, it was nerve gas. The Skripals came close to death, but thanks to the doctors and nurses of the NHS, they recovered. So when the assassination attempt on Sergei and Yulia Skripal occurred, uh, it came as no surprise to me that the immediate response from Theresa May was a strong one. It was a strong one because having given Russia an extraordinary degree of latitude in trying to uh, avoid accountability for Mr. Litvinenko's murder, what had become clear was that far from learning from that experience to respect international boundaries, it had been understood as an act of weakness, which meant that the Russian uh, authorities were free to do it again, and they did. Uh, And so the immediate reaction to that, which was the expulsion of large numbers of diplomats from this country, uh, uh, a a serious effort with diplomatic uh, partners to achieve the same results 
in other jurisdictions, the involvement of the um, Organization for the Prevention of Chemical Weapons in an investigation, and so on, and sanctions and so forth. Um, those were very important responses. Of course, it's extremely troubling to find a situation uh, where nothing has improved. There is no sign of any improvement in Russia's respect for the international rule of law. Indeed, quite the reverse is the case. Immediately before the start of the most recent G20 summit, we heard Vladimir Putin in an interview with the Financial Times formally announce uh, that liberal democracy uh, was dead. Uh, that the era uh, of uh, liberalism was over. In other words, intolerance represented by himself and Viktor Orban, uh, Matteo Salvini and others within the wider European Union uh, had triumphed. Uh, and I think, I think in the debate that follows that, it's extremely troubling that the discussions focus around moving on from Skripal without any reference to the fact that Scripple was just the latest. And be under no illusions, these are the two high-profile, established attempts uh, and actual murders that have taken place in London in the past 10 years or so, 10, 15 years. Many, many more people in London are thought to have been the victims of Russian assassinations. And outside the United Kingdom, Ukraine is littered with assassination victims, as is Russia. Individuals who have been targeted for deliberate assassination by either the regime authorities themselves or fellow travellers and friends of the regime settling scores of a political character and typically political rather than economic or criminal in nature. So many of the assassinations have involved targeting journalists, lawyers, human rights activists and people of that kind. So, I mean, the message clear, very clearly, and it's one that, that uh, Russia itself has, uh, has openly acknowledged in, in passing legislation in 2006, is that those who are deemed to be an enemy of the Russian state are fair game for targeted assassination anywhere in the world. A final thought then. If uh, Mr. Putin thinks that liberal democracy is dead, or dying is the way to prove him wrong and perhaps the way to get justice for Marina Litvinenko and others for the United Kingdom and other countries to target the money because that is the one area of weakness which it seems Mr Putin is quite sensitive about because he went out of his way to name Bill Browder as an enemy uh, in his summit with, with uh, Donald Trump. It's very interesting that and is that the weakness of the current Russian government because it floats on a sea of funny money. I think even to say that it floats on a sea of funny money is an understatement. Those involved in central functions of government have allowed what we would regard as uh, um, uh, instruments of, of management of government to be suborned for criminal purposes. So the clean-up of the banking sector, for example, was used as a pretext uh, to uh, acquire and effectively steal large numbers of banks in order to make them available for international money laundering operations. So that as one bank or group of banks became identified and blacklisted by the international money laundering supervisory authorities, 
another bank would be overtaken on spurious grounds uh, as a shell into which uh, uh, um, uh, uh, illegal proceeds could be funneled. We, we know that the central political platform uh, of uh, those who are seeking reform in Russia, like Navalny, is to go about identifying uh, the extent of the wealth of those who are in public positions of power and to ask the obvious question, which is where on earth does it come from? And in this country now, we have belatedly imported uh, a legal technique that was invented, funnily enough, in, the act in African kleptocracies, which is the creation of an order known as an unexplained wealth order. If somebody has unspeakably large amounts of money and no visible and legal means by which they may have acquired them, then the inevitable question is, if you can't explain where the money came from, the assumption is that you've been up to no good. Well, I mean, you don't need to apply an assumption in the case of, of the Russian government or Russian organized crime. That is how it works. And I think the really dangerous and frightening aspect of this, which politicians and uh, judges and uh, governmental folk around the world have still not fully woken up to is that our international system for legal cooperation, that is Interpol, it is the exchange of information, extradition rules, uh, uh, mutual legal assistance, the enforcement of foreign judgments, all of those systems are premised on the basic assumption that states will behave in good faith and with responsibility. But the moment you have states in which the handles and levers of power are being controlled by an organized criminal gang, then you are allowing access to systems that have very little due process, very little mutual scrutiny, and absolutely lack the kind of robust systems that you would need to put in place if you're going to do business with criminals. Unfortunately, it's like this soft and open underbelly of a globalized dem democratic legal system. So the, the problem we have, I mean, it's no, it's no good talking about cleaning up the city or anything of that kind now. It's far, far worse and more serious than that. The problem we have is that the very instruments of international government are in the hands of uh, or under the control of elements that do not respect fundamental principles of the rule of law. And that includes some of the most responsible positions in the United Nations, uh, large parts of the budget of the Council of Europe, which recently readmitted Russia after uh, suspending it following the unlawful annexation of Crimea. I mean, you, you know, the, the idea that, that sufficient time has passed to start to relax sanctions against Russia is, is so um, uh, uh, wrong-headed because the problem is not that, that, that sufficient time hasn't passed. The problem is that those who are having to make the international policy decisions haven't even started to wake up to the gravity of the situation, which affects every area of public administration globally, including, sad as we now know it to be, the, the, the use of um, all forms of artificial intelligence and uh, social media networking to distort the very principles of our democracies. Came within a whisker of having the head of Interpol exactly. as a Russian. Exactly. And I mean, it, it was a, an extremely uh, close call 
when um, R- R- Russia looked ready to move in and have its nominee take over from uh, the Chinese uh, official who had been uh, president of Interpol, an individual who had personally been part of the Interpol regime at a time when we know, because it's proven and established, that Russia engaged in routine, repeated, systematic misuse of the Interpol system. So pursuing political opponents with trumped up charges all over the world repeatedly, despite the fact that courts in various jurisdictions had looked into the allegations and found them to be completely fraudulent. Now, that's a good example of how dangerously close we came in the Interpol context to handing the entire machinery of Interpol into the control of those who we know abuse it for the purposes of pursuing political enemies and thereby furthering a broad criminal agenda of allowing international organised crime to flourish through a global network of money laundering. That is a shocking state of affairs and it was only a very, very sharp rearguard action uh, spearheaded by some of those who'd been chased by Russia around the world and supported by parliaments in different parts of Europe who have experience of being on the receiving end uh, of that type of activity, including those in the United Kingdom Parliament who stood up against it, that, 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 that just narrowly averted that. But I won't, without going into details and names, I can tell you that there are other elections to other extremely influential international uh, mutual assistance bodies uh, in which no such campaign was successful, where Russian officials very close to the Kremlin are exercising uh, highly influential international roles of, of policy making and administration giving influence over democratic states, which they certainly ought not to have. The thing is, much of what you have said, or almost everything you've said, actually, Ben, has been on the public record. In other words, we know this, don't we? And yet, we don't seem to be doing very much about it. I think it's extremely difficult uh, for people in Western European democracies to relate this type of cloak and dagger, high level organized crime story to their daily lives. I think people did begin to realize that, for example, meddling in elections and referenda might change their daily lives. And although it's impossible to measure the extent to which uh, hostile uh, influence operations shifted the needle, we know that they're were substantial resources put in, for example, to influencing the outcome uh, of the the Brexit referendum. And one has to assume that every Western European election or referendum is the subject to similar operations. Now, for people to understand the impact on their daily lives is a process that necessarily takes time. But I think what people do begin to, are beginning to realise is that the West was unduly complacent when the Berlin Wall came down uh, and the perestroika reforms and the glasnost introduced by uh, President Gorbachev were heralded as a sort of fundamental victory for the forces of liberalism, capitalism and democracy 
over the forces of totalitarian uh, socialism. And I think that the consequence of that uh, sense that, the, if you like, in very, very crude, simplistic terms, this general sense that the West had won was that all defences dropped. Because the, the underlying assumption, and I remember it very well during the debate about whether Russia should be allowed to join the Council of Europe and be part of the European Court of Human Rights, that the, 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 the expectation for those who were optimistic was that although Russia hadn't reached the point uh, of being a mature democracy, it could only really go in that direction. And as a result, we encouraged and fostered greater globalization, global communications, global, I mean, global methods uh, of, of social media, without any concern of the impact that the globalization of democracy and democratic communication might be exposing an incredibly vulnerable underbelly. Because we were letting into all of our both formal institutions and informal technological and social advances a series of chauvinistic powers which had no experience of living under that set of values and we know what the result is and the military action has typically been directed at Russia's near neighbours former parts of the Soviet Union that became independent and wanted to move either closer to NATO in the case of Georgia or closer to the European Union in the case of Ukraine. They are to be punished. They are to be punished by invasion, by the annexation of parts of their territory. 20% of Georgia is still occupied by Russia. The whole of Crimea has been unlawfully uh, uh, occupied by Russia uh, since uh, the, the so-called annexation. The war in eastern Ukraine, which is an endless, horrible, bloody conflict resembling the trenches of the First World War, is left there festering and supported and sponsored by Russia in order permanently to destable Ukraine, one of the largest states uh, in Europe and part of the axis between east and west. And so, you, you know, the, the, the attempt to tackle and destabilize the European social order is absolutely central to the Putin project. All this leads to the biggest question of all. What should the West do to rein in Russian adventurism, assassinations and propaganda? Well, there's a carrot and a stick policy, except without much of a stick. The stick could involve more vigorously investigating the money laundering activities of some of those rich Russians who've bought multi-million dollar mansions in Western countries despite apparently being of modest means. London, some anti-corruption experts have told me, has turned into one of the world's great money laundering capitals. The stick could also lead to naming and shaming more corrupt individuals, especially those close to President Putin, more vigorous freezing of bank accounts and to strongly punishing the Kremlin by kicking Russia out of multinational organisations. But the West seems mainly to have adopted the carrot strategy by default. Russia is engaged and encouraged to join or remain in multinational political institutions in the hope of producing better behaviour. Kremlin critics claim even when the stick was used, the punishment is only temporary. For example, Russia was expelled from the Council of Europe after it annexed part of Ukraine, Crimea. Then it was readmitted even though Crimea remains in Russian hands and there is no obvious change to Kremlin behaviour. 
You could call this Realpolitik. You could also call it Western weakness. Hubert Smeets is a Dutch journalist and founder of the analysis platform Ram op Rusland, or Window on Russia. I am not against the uh, return of Russia inside the, the Council of Europe. I think that the European Convention can play a role, and still plays a role, in Russia itself. There is, let's say, developing in Russia now an embryonic civil society in Russia. And that is a civil society that is developing around political themes. But there is also a kind of civil society developing in, in Russia around more social and, and, and cultural topics. For example, renovation of old neighborhoods which were built in the 50s and the 60s and now really are ready for renovation. There is very small civil society around town planning and city planning that is too much in favor of big capital and too less in favor of ordinary people. There is a civil society developing around waste management. You could say that waste management in Russia is the reality that was showed in The Sopranos in fiction. And the people don't take it anymore because it's bad for their health. And third, and that is the most interesting at the moment, is that there is also a little civil society developing around, let's say, civil rights. Uh, people were arrested before and after the, um, uh, the local elections in Moscow. And some people were arrested and convicted on absolutely absurd terms. And there are people who are protesting that. And not only the usual suspects in the opposition, but, for example, communists who are saying three and a half years jail for someone who resisted an arrest by highly armed riot policemen. That is absurd. And the man is now freed. Also, the church was criticizing the law enforcement um, in Russia in, in a few cases. So there is a kind of uh, civil society also developing in between politics and social, cultural, democracy issues. Maybe some kind of change in Russia is indeed underway, or maybe it's more fake news. Since this is the era of disinformation, who can be certain? Professor Timothy Snyder is an American author and historian specializing in the history of Central and Eastern Europe. He's clear that Vladimir Putin is quite happy with the way things are going, and he should be happy, for Putin is playing a weak hand very well. Mr. Putin is the high priest of the form of politics, which actually has no alternative to the status quo. In fact, his whole game is to keep the Russian status quo going as long as possible. But in order to keep the Russian status quo going as long as possible, the rest of the world's status quo, or at least the West, should look more like Russia, right? Or, should, or to put it more precisely, it should not look like an attractive alternative to Russia. Right? So if anything happens in Britain which is chaotic, the Russian press covers it and plays it up. Right? Any problem, they cover it and play it up. Or if there's something in, in, that's happening in Britain, like Brexit, which is going to cause chaos, they support it, right? which they did. They supported Brexit with, um, probably with money, I don't know, but they supported Brexit with, certainly with, at our, with RT, with their television resources. They supported it on the internet. Um, and their diplomats supported it. And you know, Mr. Putin talked about it. Mr. Putin talked about how wonderful it would be for you guys after Brexit which is generally a sign that you should like think twice about something. Like if Mr. Putin says, you should really go out with this woman, you know, you should probably like give it another thought before you make plans for that Saturday night. Um, but, but in any event, so there's no, dis so their basic foreign policy is unlike the Soviet Union, they're not even pretending to have an alternative. What they say is 
you guys are just like we are, right? You say that there's law, you say that there's truth, but we know that you're kidding. And we're going to expose that you're kidding. We're going to make everyone understand that you're just kidding. We're going to undermine your institutions of journalism and of law so that you look like a joke. And once you look like a joke, then it'll be easier for us to govern at home because the Russians won't be able to look to Paris or Berlin or London or Washington and say, oh, things are better over there because they they won't be. So it is policy to spread chaos. They're winning with Mr. Trump in that respect. They're not winning in every respect. With Brexit, they're definitely winning. So... I, I think what the Russians will do is they'll keep doing what they've been doing. I mean, when, when the Russians invaded Ukraine, I wrote a bunch of stuff at the time saying, look, this is the beginning. The, the, the important part of this Ukrainian war is, is not so much the invasion, horrible that is. The important part of this Ukrainian war is the information campaign. It's their mm-hmm. effort to get us confused and get us divided. And that's what you're going to continue to see for the next years to come. And that is what, you know, that is what we saw since after 2014 and what we're still seeing. And they will keep pushing, you know, to help AFDA in Germany and to help the FPO in Austria. And they will keep pushing, you know, to help the Front National in France. They will help the people who they think are most disruptive. But I don't actually think they have an end game here. I think both the EU and the United States can successfully bounce back from this. What I think can't bounce back from it, um, and I'll just say a word about Brexit, is a, is a, is a smaller, medium-sized country which is not part of a larger institution. Right. I mean, I realize there are lots of reasons why people like why people think they like Brexit, but it is Russian foreign policy to for there to be for there to be Brexit. And I, I, I would like to be wrong, but I'm afraid that what can't recover is a small country that leaves a bigger institution. There you've lost and you can't really come back. The EU can do things. The American political system, cranky though it is, can do things. But if if if, if the result is fragmentation at that level, it's hard to come back from it. The whole story goes back to oligarchy. That's the whole story, right? What do the Greeks say about oligarchy? The Greeks say democracy is impossible because oligarchs are going to come along and tell people a fancy story and get them to forget about their own best interests, right? Like that's been a problem from the beginning. And what Mr. Putin is doing is just a fancy globalized version of that. And he's He's, got the money and the resources personally to be able to do that. Yeah. But as for the rest of us, surely we have to ask ourselves whether we want to live in a world where lying is normalised or whether the truth still matters. It might be difficult to separate fact from convenient fictions. But in the end, what's the alternative? Living with lies means living a lie. The German philosopher Hannah Arendt put it most forcefully. Writing just after World War II, she said... The ideal subject of totalitarian rule is not the convinced Nazi or the convinced communist, but people for whom the distinction between fact and fiction and the distinction between true and false no longer exists. If there is a war against truth, perhaps it's time for truth to fight back. Next time... Is Putin on a war footing because he lives in fear his grasp of power is slipping? Above all, Putin wants to stay in power. And once you understand that he wants to stay in power and that he knows he doesn't have legitimacy in the sense that he's not democratically elected um, and he, he knows he's reliant on a whole series of corrupt arrangements to stay in power, once you understand that, a lot of his other policies make sense. And what does the future hold for Russia? Putin is due to leave office in 2024. But will he? And if so, what comes next? Is the West's real problem Putin? 
or Russia. We could get chaos. We could get the rise of some kind of ultranationalist. We could get sort of warlords slugging it out in the streets of Moscow. The Big Steel was presented by me, Gavin Esler, and produced by Martin Points Roberts at Fresh Air Production. Please make sure you subscribe to the series so you don't miss an episode. 